Hello, and welcome to episode three of Coffee, Anxiety, and Credit Card Debt, where Sting was supposed to join us to talk about his favorite anime, but unfortunately, he had a last minute thing pop up and couldn't make it. That being said, we decided to talk about a small, super niche company named Neat Fl Netflix. Oh, Netflix. Weird. <laughs> Haven't heard of it. Um, but before we get into that, we wanted to thank all of our listeners, followers, and friends for your continued support. And in addition to being eight times second grade neighborhood spelling bee champions at the ripe age of 27, those dumb kids didn't stand a chance. We are also founders building an SEC compliant stock market for music that you can learn about at symphonymarkets.com or on Instagram slash X at symphonymarkets. So if you sign up for our wait list, you automatically get registered for two Travis Scott tickets at the MGM in Las Vegas. So you can go and do that. And then if you refer someone, you also get an extra entry. So for every person you refer, you can think of it as another ticket towards that entry. Yeah. So last episode, we said that we wanted to start doing listener questions and we had a whopping 12 listener questions come in after our last podcast. Wow. Um, so I decided to pick two to answer. The first is when will the platform be all the way live? And the answer is very, very soon, but that's all you're getting. So obviously there are tons of functionality and research capabilities on the website. We just launched a feature that allows you to research the performance of different genres, location, eras, etc. but all of the lights will be coming on very soon. And the second was how tall is Kyle and what does he look like? <laughs> the answer is Kyle is 6'5", and a lean 230. He kind of looks like Chance. That's right, baby. Now that we got out the way, on to the show. So Netflix is one of the world's largest streaming services, consuming over 15% of the world's internet bandwidth. They have over 238 million paid memberships across more than 190 countries and provide these users access to TV series, films, and games in various languages. They can play, pause, and resume, watching content whenever they want, wherever they want. And obviously, their platform is revolutionary. And they've built a category-defining business that every other player in the digital media space I can think of has followed in streaming. But what I think is so amazing is the culture that they've built. And before we get into that, I think that it's important that we set the stage. So Netflix started in 1995, coincidentally, the same year I was born. So nice. it was a great year for innovators <laughs> all around the world. Yep. Reed Hastings was one of the co-founders of Netflix. He had a history of success. He IPO'd his first company, which was called Pure Software. And then in 1996, he actually acquired his future Netflix co-founders company called Integrity QA. And that guy went by the name of Mark Randolph. So that's when they originally met. After that, they announced another merger between Pure Software and Atria. Back then, software companies kind of all sounded the same. Now it's yeah. all like, there's a lot more vowels now, but yeah. it, I don't know what that yeah. what's up with that in software. We all have to like have some yeah. weird name or like <laughs> yeah. weird like .io used to be yeah. super popular and now it's yeah. like .dev is and .ai. .dev. But yeah, so Pure Software and Atria Software merged. They just went by Pure Atria. Reed was the CEO and Mark was VP. Pure Atria was acquired in 97 by Rational for $700 million shortly after. Mark and Reed left. So they were like, we're out. We're going to take our bag and dip. And they went on <laughs> to start a new business by the name of Netflix. There's actually a kind of a different version, which has been discredited by Mark 
which sounds a lot cooler. There's always like a sexy version of this before mm-hmm. and then like the realistic version. The other version effectively went that like Hastings was in the gym when he received a $40 fine from Blockbuster for renting Apollo 13 and returning it six weeks late. But uh, that actually wasn't true. They carpooled to work every day from their homes in Santa Cruz to their office in Silicon Valley. Mark seemed to be stuck on the idea of e-commerce and pitched Reed every day, everything from surfboards to custom baseball bats, dog food, shampoo, but Reed wasn't feeling any of it. Do you have anything like that with any of your friends, which is like a running list of of just ideas? Yeah, business ideas. My friend Adam and I have, we call it half-baked business ideas. (laughs) They're like horrible business ideas that will like never go anywhere, but it's just funny to think about. What's one of them? If you can think of one. Let me bring up our text thread. This guy I know who I won't mention by name because he listens to the show, but he'll know who he is. Had this idea called Poober, which is basically Uber for (laughs) bathrooms. If you need to poop and you're out and you don't want to use a public restroom, you can rent out someone else's bathroom. (laughs) Okay, so I have one. It's indoor basketball courts for old guys. So the the floors are a bit springy and the hoops are two two feet lower. The court length is way shorter. (laughs) He's he's like, you're just out there feeling like a king. Another one was a detachable cauliflower ear in South America. In South America, it's like a cool thing to have cauliflower ear. It means you're training and you're like a part of the MMA community. So people will like give themselves cauliflower ear even if they don't train so that people at like bars and things will think that they train yeah and so his thing he thought of like detachable cauliflower ear <laughs> that you can like take on and off to make that's actually better. hilarious hey listen that would definitely sell out on amazon but anyway soon after reed was getting tired of all of mark's ideas in their car rides mark heard of a new product out of japan called the dvd or digital versatile disc He anticipated that the DVD would replace VHS cassettes, and after going back and forth with Reed in the car, they were both bought into the idea that they could build something around DVDs. After they came to this conclusion, they walked to a book and record store in Santa Cruz, bought a CD of Patsy Cline's greatest hits, and mailed it to Reed's house across town. When the CD arrived unbroken, they realized that they had something there. At the end of the summer of 1997, Netflix was registered as a business and funded with almost $2 million of Reed Hastings' personal capital, with additional investors throwing in some cash as well. I wow, wanted, that's a yeah. huge amount of money. That's what I was saying. I wanted to pause here because yeah. $2 million, I think it was actually $2.5 million. I read elsewhere, at least, that it was $2.5 million. In 1997, that's a lot of money. But then in addition to that, like I didn't know much about the founding story of Netflix before we started to research, but I thought it was like a startup. It's not like he sold his first company for $700 million. Right. And like, not to take, it's not taking anything away from Reed Hastings and Mark Randolph, but (laughs) (laughs) um, yeah, (laughs) but that's still like a really big bet for him to just pull out of his personal wealth at the time. Yeah, it is pretty large. That's, that's a large amount of money. Yeah. And then also, right, you're committing yourself to working on this for, you know, the rest of your life, essentially, at least in the foreseeable future. I also wanted to ask you what you thought about the $40 fine story and if you thought that it could have been cooler. (laughs) That's something you tell investors. I don't know how true. I don't think that that was true at all. Also, do you actually think that he was concerned about a $40 
if he, if he threw in $2 million into, <laughs> he just sold yeah. his last company for 700 yeah. million. And then he gets like a $40 fine. And he's like, this is absurd. Exactly. <laughs> two IPOs and two mergers in the span of like four years. And you're like, Gosh. yeah, is he still even checking his own mail? Absolutely yeah. not. From there, they became a rent by mail DVD service where users would pay per rental and they can browse and order films they wanted on the website, put in an order, and then Netflix would ship the DVD. After the renters were done, they just had to send the DVD back. No due dates or late fees and unlimited content for $19.95 a month. Netflix covered all postage costs. And then in 98, they launched with 900 titles. Within 15 minutes, the website crashed as they get hit with orders. And at the end of the day, they booked 137 orders. I wonder why it crashed. They launched with 900 titles and within... 15 minutes the website crashed because they got so yeah. many orders that's crazy do you know what a ddos attack is yes people out there that don't know it's distributed denial of service mm -hmm. effectively the way that a server works is it's taking in requests and then responding with some data and if you send it a ridiculous amount of requests it can't process them at a reasonable rate and so the server will crash or run out of memory there's a lot of different things in that kind of process that can go wrong mm -hmm. and this is kind of what cloudflare i'm sure maybe you've seen when you visit a site there's like a window that comes up sometimes which is like a cloudflare we're waiting to make sure that you're a real person mm -hmm. so cloudflare revolutionized ddos attacks and everyone uses them to make sure that they don't get attacked mm. but anyways so i listened to this podcast and they would have all of the listeners at the same time go to whoever they're advertisers were so that they're like, look at how much traffic we generate. But really wow. it's like 75 people that are sitting there just refreshing the page yeah. <laughs> to make it look like they were sending a whole bunch of users to their website yeah. so that they would pay them more in advertising revenue. Those kinds of things were really common back yeah. before. Like we have all this infrastructure in place to support mm -hmm. all these problems, but. Yeah, no, I like that. That's actually pretty cool. Maybe we should start doing that too. See, <laughs> it's sponsored. <laughs> Can um, get advertisers first. <laughs> exactly. That's true. But yeah, so that happened in 98. And 98 is pivotal for them in a bunch of different ways, obviously. But one of them that fits into you know what we wanted to talk about today is the hiring of Patty McCord, who comes in as their chief talent officer. And she remained their chief talent officer until 2012. This is something I kind of knew about, but I didn't know that much about until a friend of mine who used to work there encouraged me to dig in a bit more about like corporate culture at Netflix. Company culture is something that you, Kyle, talk a lot about. And, you know, we both have stories of places or bosses we've had that helped us learn exactly like what we don't want in a business of our own. I kind of wanted to talk a little bit more about why it's so important to you even right now, right? When we're a team of two and one part-time member. Obviously, like building foundation is important and setting the tone, but that relationship is important. Brian Armstrong also talks about how when they raised their Series A, one of the first hires they made was a recruiter and mm -hmm. a talent officer mm -hmm. because it's really like a compounding effect. If you have someone that is solely dedicated to hiring great people, it's like a flywheel of getting incredibly talented people within your business. And that is so crucial to like the early stages of business when everyone knows what everyone is doing and you can really make an impact. And when you're young, execution matters a lot. Reed Hastings wrote this book called No Rules Rules. They have a chart in their introduction, which is effectively like how they recruited people and why they did it. There's three pillars and 
the first one is building up talent density by creating a workforce of high performers. So, you know, getting really great people in, introducing candor and Ray Dalio talks mm. about radical candor and how that helps organizations yeah. and then removing controls. So vacations, travel and expense policies. So unlimited vacation, travel whenever you want, mm -hmm. and then kind of having an unlimited expense. I think that when you hire great people, especially you got to let them cook. You know yeah. what I mean? Not only that, but they are taking a bet on you mm -hmm. as well as you're taking a bet on them in those yeah. early days. I think it's so healthy for everyone to be on the same page as to what metrics we're driving towards and the state of the business, because this, especially if software engineers, we have access to everything. We know what the metrics are. We know the health of the business. Mm -hmm. And if it's not being talked about, it, it's an uneasy feeling to like know something that no one is actually addressing in the room. It's right? a red and, flag. Yeah, it's a huge red flag. And no one wants to be in that culture and in that environment. Mm -hmm. And then another thing with like the candor, candor is a difficult one because it's a hard line to draw between just frankly being an asshole. But I think it's kind of up to the founding team to set an example there of what is and isn't appropriate to talk about. But I think it's good to have candid conversations with people one-on-one -on -one and talk about the expectations of performance. But yeah. it is really up to the founding team to set that example of how much we're going to work, how honest we're going to be with one another, setting those metrics out in front of people of here's what we want to achieve. Yeah, I like yeah. the idea yeah. of group metrics, right? The overarching yeah. goal has to be the same for everybody and having that type of transparency is important. And what I don't like is we need to be here, but then there's no direction. Yeah, they're like, well, that's what we hired you for. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's backwards. Yeah. That was the first pillar, which is like mm -hmm. candor and, and removing remove controls. And then the next one that we can talk about is paying top of market. Mm -hmm. and increasing candor a little bit mm -hmm. and then slowly releasing more controls such as decision-making approvals. So like mm -hmm. someone, when someone's past that first pillar, quote unquote, of like, mm -hmm. okay, we're a high performer. We're doing what we, what we say we're going to do and we're doing it quickly and moving fast. Like they absolutely deserve to be compensated incredibly well. And I was mm -hmm. actually having a conversation about this with someone who applied and they said, why don't you just hire a bunch of really low end people, train them and manage them to do all the work. First off, I don't want to be the smartest person in my own company. I want to work with the best people and the best people deserve to be paid the best. Like, mm -hmm. however you want to say that they absolutely do. If you're a great employee, you know, the odds of that equity being worth anything for you are mm -hmm. pretty slim to none. So having the best people, you have to pay best market. And I mean, obviously everybody talks about getting like a fang job or a mm -hmm. mang job and, and yeah. is a part of that. So Netflix plays really well. Before we keep going down that, that's like most of what I wanted to talk about, but I think there are some really interesting kind of inflection points where Netflix really has to lean into those ideologies and it pays off for them really big. So in 99, they had a total of 239,000 subscribers and 3,100 titles. Then in 2000, Reed Hastings approaches John Antioco, I think is how you pronounce it, former CEO of Blockbuster and asks him to buy Netflix for $50 million. But then John turns him down, last him out of the office basically, which is crazy to think about now. In 2001, Netflix hits 1 million subscribers, yeah. grows super quickly, had around 120 employees and was planning an IPO. But then the dot-com bubble burst, the 9-11 attacks happened. And as a result of the slew of catastrophic events that throw the economy into disarray, they push the IPO and lay off a third of their employees. But then 
DVD players make a comeback during Christmas of 2001. And remember at the time, there's still a DVD by mail subscription. So for three months later. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, so they went from... They went from 250,000 in 99 to a million in 2001. So they're growing at 100% crazy year over year, which yep. is crazy on that big of a number. Yep. And then they had 120 employees doing 20 million in revenue. That's crazy. 120 crazy. employees doing, yeah, that's incredible. Yep. So yeah, DVD players make a comeback. There's still a DVD by mail subscription business at the time. So now in early 2002, their business is growing fast again but they have 30% fewer employees. And this is where Patty really comes in and changes the game for the people at Netflix. So in a piece that she wrote in the Harvard Business Review about their revolutionary HR philosophy, Patty McCord explains that one day after the layoffs, she was talking to one of her best engineers who uh, she calls John in the article. Before the layoffs, John managed three other people, but now was a one-man department working super long hours. She was telling him about how she felt bad and she wanted to hire more people for him, but he told her not to rush because he's happier now because the engineers that got let go weren't super extraordinary. They were just adequate, which is the word that she uses. After the layoffs, he realized he spent too much time trying to manage them and fix their mistakes rather than executing at a high level across the board, which translates exactly to what Patty describes as the most basic part of Netflix's talent philosophy, which is the best thing you can do for your employees, uh, better than unlimited vacation time, free catered meals, super flexible spending yeah. accounts, is giving them excellent people to work with. One thing that really stuck with me about a conversation you and I had a couple of weeks ago is like, what makes a good engineer? And this is exactly what you were telling me about. I tweeted about this the other day, but there's a odd amount of being a quote unquote good engineer that has to do with just pure organization mm -hmm. and the way that you work. And then I think the best engineers that I've worked with not only understand it from a technical perspective, but understand it from the business's perspective of what we're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And then can take a business like problem and then translate that into code. Like whether yeah. that's designing something, writing the code, like spinning up a server, you know, kind of doing like whatever it takes to make this solution work. And that doesn't only apply to like software engineers, like that's, you know, great marketing people too, of like it's, and it's kind of just like this mindset of doing whatever needs done as mm -hmm. opposed to, oh, that's not my job. That's XYZ's person job. And there are certainly like rules and responsibilities that you want to put in place and guardrails around um, you know, ownership of things. And I think giving people ownership over tasks, but then kind of allowing them the ability to kind of approach that however they see fit, I think is like exactly what you want to do. And that's the thing. It's the way you explained it to me that night is like, you don't want to have to bring someone on that you have to manage on a day-to-day -day basis. It's about getting from point A to point B in the most resourceful and efficient way possible. Yeah. And that's never going to be like micromanaging day-to-day. -day. Yeah. And that's your first five to 10 employees you shouldn't mm -hmm. have to manage in yeah. my opinion they should get it know what we're trying to do mm -hmm. and be able to execute i like the way you explain owning a piece of the process right like owning a, a piece of the business and making sure you're moving the ball down the field there every day yeah steve jobs had this mm -hmm. video that he put out when i think his name is john scully it was like a step down from ceo and mm -hmm. jobs came back in but he was like, John got a very serious disease, which is the disease of thinking that a great idea is 90% of the work. And mm -hmm. if you have this great idea, you can just tell people about it and then they'll go make it happen. Yeah. What that ignores is like, and this is exactly what Steve was saying, it just ignores a lot of nuance in the details. And mm -hmm. 
a great engineer makes all those decisions correctly without having to come back and ask a million questions. I love it. I love it when Kyle just pops up and says, Hey, I built this. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) It's the best. So in 2002, Netflix goes public in May, their IPO raises 82.1 million and that values Netflix at $309.7 million. Again, this is two years after they asked Blockbuster to buy them for 50 million. Four years later, they finally become profitable. They generate more than $80 million in revenue and subscriptions jump to 6.3 million. So in 2007, they begin streaming content, which is what we know Netflix as today, delivering directly to TVs, computers, tablets, and it's watch now service. So uh, the first trial is in Canada. They launched with a thousand titles included in the $5.99 a month physical DVD subscription tier. And then in 2010, they turned their focus entirely to streaming. They come to the US and Reed explains that three years ago, they were a DVD by mail company that offered some streaming, but now they're a streaming company that also offers DVD by mail. Coincidentally, in the same year, Blockbuster files for bankruptcy. Real quick, how sick do you think John was a couple years later after laughing these people out of his office and then- yeah. You have this crazy public eye. I wonder why he denied them. I think, you know, if you're Blockbuster, like they have arguably the largest foothold on the rental business at that point. Blockbuster got into a class action action lawsuit about how their late fees worked. They did really tricky things that week that you had it in order to like get as much money out of people. So if you rented a movie, let's say you rent it 6 p.m. on Monday, you would think that you would be able to return it at 6 p.m. the next Monday. But they actually purposely made it so that you had to return the DVD during working hours so that it was harder for you to wow. make it to Blockbuster before you got off of work. They had some lawsuits about the like some of the tricky things that they would do with late fees and manipulating kind of people's habits. And look what happened. Damn. Yeah. Hate to see it. Like you're basically like profiting off of, I don't know how to describe it, like bad habits isn't what I want to say, but people's mistakes. You're not maximizing like, right? like, the value for your customer. I don't know. Like you want to reward them for like them. good behavior, basically. Yeah. But yeah, so in 2012, Netflix starts making original shows. The first one is called Lilyhammer, and the second is House of Cards, which I watched. Have you seen House of Cards? Yeah, I watched the first season until Spacey had his whole oh his whole thing. thing. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. crazy that their second show was that big of a hit, right? I'd never heard of Lilyhammer, but yeah. House of Cards was huge. House of Cards was huge, and since then they've made. 1900 originals won a bunch of awards and are the streaming service known for the best originals so in 2016 they're live in 130 countries they add local languages to its user interface subtitles and dubbing when i was reading this i was surprised that this only happened in 2016 but i also know literally nothing about how complicated it is to implement those features so yeah in 2017 they reached 100 million subscribers worldwide which is insane and then in 2022 they lose 200,000 subscribers in the first quarter, and they start to think of different ways to get subscribers. They crack down on password sharing, introduce ad-supported tier, almost kind of leaning into like the blockbuster way of things, as opposed to doing their best to maximize the value for their customer. I think but- Netflix as a business, because they're publicly traded, they have to have an infinite growth. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that they've found their second product i feel like they're kind of just trying things now they're basically a production company at this point 
and you like browse what's on Netflix. It's like mostly Netflix original stuff mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. And then I just don't know that they have another business that they can kind of lean into. Like what's the next revenue stream for them? But this is you the thing, I mean? right? It's like, this is the, this is the problem with being a first mover. First mover as an aggregator, they were an aggregator first, but as streaming became the the industry standard for how studios were distributing content, all of a sudden ABC is like, oh, we can just do this ourselves. Netflix is, you know, making money selling our content or like distributing our content for us. Once our distribution deal is up with them, we'll just take all of our content back in house. Same with HBO, Disney, all of these other companies. So they're forced to produce their own things. Their production structure or their like royalty structure for their content is also super interesting. They pay big lump sums up front and then they retain all of the revenue. They've almost taken a VC model approach to content, just kind of throwing money at all this stuff and then hoping that they have huge successes Mm -hmm. within their content. Whereas before the model was probably much more challenging, I would imagine, to get something on TV in like the early 2000s. Now, I mean, with YouTube and yeah. anybody can put stuff on YouTube, literally. Exactly. And then I would imagine Netflix is, it's probably a lot easier to get something on Netflix than it was cable back in. You get a lot of, like you said, Jerry Seinfeld is obviously not a small comedian, but you get a lot of like smaller up and coming comedians who are struggling to get Netflix specials, just going direct to YouTube and, and monetizing their audience yeah. that way. Andrew cool. Schultz was kind of like the biggest. Yep. Front of the show, man. Andrew Schultz. There's this other guy, Chris Stefano, who did that. The other interesting thing is Netflix is more of a tech company in that way, right? Like their algorithm is super sharp. They've really pioneered different features that are consistent with other tech platforms, user profiles and things like that, the suggestion-based interface and stuff. But then on their production side, you're seeing a lot of other tech companies follow suit and competing like Amazon or Apple. It's the same type of thing. Now that Netflix doesn't have content to pull from other studios, they are pouring so much money and resources into their own production. That's what Apple is doing now too. Because they're tech companies, they have tech company money. Yeah. Right. They're also so, valued at like tech company multiples. Like it, I think their P exactly. is like 40. Yeah. Right? Crazy. Insane. They pioneered this architecture called microservices. Instead of having like a server constantly running, it's kind of a server that only runs when you're getting a request. Yeah. It's this weird thing in technology where like if one company becomes really successful doing something one way, like the entire industry will kind of go that way, whether or not it's the right thing to do. And now over the past, I don't know, probably like three years or so, people have kind of started to be like, oh, wait, this actually doesn't make sense from not only an architectural standpoint, but then like a cost perspective. Like Netflix is AWS's largest customer. They are a gigantic spender. I mean, countries GDP Netflix spends on AWS bills. I mean, yeah, like you said, 15% of the world's internet bandwidth. Yeah, I would have never even thought that. That's insane. So what I wanted to end on was Patty McCord's five pillars for hiring talent. The first is hire, reward, and tolerate only fully formed adults. So essentially what this means is if you hire the right people who put the company first, 97% of the employees would do the right things. An example of this is their travel slash expense policy, which is five words long. Act in Netflix's best interests. That's exactly what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, I want to do that. That's cool. I like that. 
you don't want to have to manage people. So like when you get a per diem on a typical vacation, I'm maxing mm -hmm. that thing out, dude. We're spending every dollar. Oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There were some studies that went around having to do with mm -hmm. time off, which was unlimited time off. There's a theory that people take less time off when you give them unlimited vacation. Do you think that people will spend less money on their travel and expenses when you give them the ability to travel and expense whatever they want? Yeah, I think there's, like you said, like a little bit of reverse psychology there where it's like you don't want to abuse it because you're worried that they will be like, okay, when we said unlimited, right. we didn't mean unlimited. Right. And then you don't want to have to answer for, you know, crazy expenses or it's a lot easier to defend yourself and saying like, this is, this is what it's for. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the next one was tell the truth about performance. Oh yeah. So this one is interesting. They stopped doing formal performance reviews and they shifted to in-person 360 reviews, which means basically everybody sits in a room and gives an honest evaluation about one person, including the person being evaluated, right? Yeah. So like, I like that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I've had, I think I've that falls had in performance reviews where I didn't even know I was going to be reviewed on my performance. And it's like, oh, this is happening right now. Like, I didn't know. Oh, really? Yeah, I had no, like, I, it's like. You have to, yeah, it's just, I've had some preposterous things happen. Yeah, I really like that. And I think it's good for like the person being evaluated to explain how they think they're doing because then at least as, as management and as the person, right, or as the individual, like you can see where the, the disconnect or like misalignment is Yeah. and like what work is being done. One of my best friends used to work there and his first one, I remember distinctly him telling me about how nervous he was for his first one. And then everyone after that, he was, it's just like kind of like a thing. It's like a check-in. A, a regular check-in is very different than like annual performance reviews. What do you think about once a year performance reviews? I think it should be like monthly or quarterly. Quarterly. I like quarterly. Yearly I just is think, like, that's so yeah. long. <laughs> yeah. And then also from like a management perspective, why are you waiting a year to tell someone yeah, exactly. or like figure out that they're not doing well? And then the third is managers own the job of creating great teams. She quotes former secretary of defense, Donald Rumsfeld and says, you go to war with the army you have, not the army you might want or wish to have at a later time. This one is interesting to me because I feel like at first it's almost a little, to me at least contradictory to the idea of surrounding yourself with like the best people, but it's not the best people, right? It's the best people that you can get at that time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Cause like you said, right. It's about minimizing the, the back and forth, the questions and stuff like that and maximizing on autonomous execution. Yeah. Right. And every company says they want the best people, but the reality is most companies can't get the best people. And what company is going to be out there is like, oh no, we actually want to hire like middle tier, yeah. low performing people. No, you get what you pay for and then you get the, the culture and, and what you're building and the impact that you're making. And I also think there's a part in there about like identifying capable people and then like teaching them how to be efficient. Yeah. Right. Again, like outside of the first five people, yeah, like you can't expect someone to come in and just be crushing it with no direction yeah. whatsoever. Steve Jobs, I know I quote Steve Jobs all the time, but... He gave an interview after he left Apple the first time. And one of the things he talked about a lot was his management style around seeing people as the potential that they have, as opposed to mm -hmm. what they are at this very moment. And he talked about how people grow and how they change over time. Great employees want to learn and grow. They mm -hmm. want to make money. Definitely. Like that's undeniable, yeah. but great employees want to work on challenging things and be challenged and be reaching and growing as an employee. 
And so it's your job as an employer to kind of have something that is like, like they're constantly reaching towards and like a goal and the like, carrot, yeah, dangling, have like carrot. a carrot and like something that they can like achieve and that they, but that they can see too. Right. And like yeah. make it something that they can actually attain and grow towards as a contributor within the companies. That's the fourth point that she talks about. She says leaders own the job of creating the company culture. And she says that this is super important and probably the least consistent pillar that she sees in other startups. She said that there are usually three main problems with startups that she sees. The first problem is they focus too much on the casual work environment, right? yeah. which often contradicts the high performance ethos that founders actually want. And it implies a certain level of winging it when oftentimes there isn't a lot of preparation done and the leaders are relying too much on, and this is a quote, charm, IQ, and improvisation, which yeah. employees notice. Not only right. there is a type of founder that can raise money, but can't run a business. And then when they have people working for them, the people that are working for them are like, oh, this guy's just like a <laughs> con artist. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it, but it's like, yeah, oh, they don't actually have a plan here. They're just like, they mm -hmm. just wanted to start a business or something. Uh, Which is nerve wracking. Like imagine asking for $50 million and then getting it. And then not knowing what to do with it. Yeah. I can't. Right? <laughs> I can't imagine that. Like, I like but the, the charm I can. Do you not respect thing. the hustle a little bit? So like, I do. Yeah. I'm like, that's a skill. But like, <laughs> you can't be lying to yourself. Oh, and like, I know. Yeah. Right? There has to be a part of you that knows like, you don't actually know what you're doing. That's, right? You like need to insulate yourself well. You have to know that you don't know to be yeah, and then exactly. just have the confidence to be like, oh, no, I know. We're going to do this. I can speak with confidence if I actually believe what I'm saying. But sometimes it's so blatantly obvious that you're, you have no idea. Yeah. Great employees are just not going to put up with that at all. Because they see it, right? Like, yeah, they're, they, not, they're there like, every if day. If you're hiring the right people, they know. Yeah, yeah. they're yeah, there exactly. every day. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. The second point under the problems with startups is employees don't understand the levers that drive the business. Even if you've hired people who want to perform well, you need to clearly communicate how the company makes money, what behaviors will drive its success. And if yeah. you don't even know what those levers are going yeah. to be. That's a really good yeah. point. Between ages 19 and 23, 24, I didn't know how the companies I worked at made money. Like, and that's not even an exaggeration. Like you probably did yeah. because you were in business, you, you know, had a business background and that was of mm -hmm. interest to you. I was so mm -hmm. hyper-focused on building products and writing code that when you're in a large organization, you're so far removed from how the business actually makes money when you're just writing code mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons. But like, you don't really have any access to the business side of things of how things are run and revenue coming in and all that kind of stuff. but you should very clearly like make sure that every employee knows yeah. what path we're on here and how to move towards that. Yeah. In those environments, did you feel like it was okay to ask? Yeah, that's how a good, are we making, how is what I'm doing contributing to like, that's a good question. Money? I think for me, I didn't, I don't know if I cared. I was so interested mm -hmm. in making products that I, I didn't really think about the business side of things at all. There is a sentiment and some founders believe this, which is like when employees mm -hmm. start asking questions about money, that it's quote, the wrong kind of question to ask and that mm -hmm. employees should be thinking about the vision of the company, how it's going to change the world, like what impact it's going to mm -hmm. make on society. I think I may have had a, maybe a mm -hmm. little bit of that, but I also don't 
think I really cared. I was, I just wanted to make yeah. great products. I didn't really care yeah. about the money. And then there, it also just leads down. There's sometimes that pressure of like when you're a lower level employee, like you, it's not your place a lot of the times to yeah. like ask those kinds of questions. And so that, that was probably my mindset, but yeah, I get that. I think there's a superiority complex that anybody above you like has looking at you initially, right? Where it's like, yeah, why do you even care about those things? They don't even matter to you at the end of the day. They'll say, you're not just here to show up and collect a paycheck. But then like, when you start asking questions, they're like, you're getting paid. Why do you care? That's bad management. And then that's bad. Like, yeah. employee. That leads into the third yep. point that she makes about startups, which is she calls the split personality startup where tech companies often take the shape of disconnected engineering and sales teams. Yeah. They don't understand each other or really even see each other. She says that leaders need to understand subcultures that require different management. Yeah. I think this is the most common, at least mm -hmm. in my experience, there is a, like a sales founder and then product mm -hmm. gets put on the back burner and they don't really care mm -hmm. about the quality of the product that they're putting out. They just care about the revenue numbers that are coming in. And then there's the yeah. product founder who is like hyper-focused on making a great product, but is really horrible at sales and then the sales department lacks. So I think like having on the founding team, one person from each of those sectors and, and, and allowing them to kind of argue things out because that happens a lot in the more mature business gets the more that the salespeople start to matter more than the engineering people start to matter. Mm -hmm. It's just up to the, the tech leaders to set a good culture and expectations around yeah. things and make sure that there's um, a healthy balance of shipping products and tech debt and, and things along that nature. Mm -hmm. I think that leads into her last point of the five good talent managers think like business people and innovators first and like HR people last. Her point here is that like not enough people devote themselves to the bottom line. And like as a talent manager, your job isn't to make sure that people are only happy, right? It's not about developing incentive programs and like devoting yourselves to like the ideal company culture in the sense that everyone's happy. It's the ideal company culture that drives efficiency. And yeah. her point here is what's going to drive efficiency is like, making people happy, but then also making people happy is going to drive efficiency. So like she makes this point in her article where like, if you, if you're throwing like a party, but the stock price is dropping, you just keep putting pool tables and foosball tables in the office. Yeah. People are still going to quietly complain, but just over like a game of foosball. Like no, it doesn't mean that yeah. people are going to be happier and start working harder. Yeah. Um, she has this part where she says, here's a simple test. If your company has a performance bonus plan, Go up to a random employee and ask, do you know specifically what you should be doing right now to increase your bonus? If he or she can't answer, the HR team isn't making things as clear as they need to be. You should be making it clear to the company and all of the people on the team what value means to you and the business, like what that looks like, but then also how they should be specifically driving that. And just leave them with that. If they run with it, they're the right person, but if they keep coming back and they're you know, ask about if they're doing the things the right way, then like they're not the right person for yeah. the company at that time. Yep. I do have a question. My last question. Um, from a tech perspective, would you consider Netflix an impressive company? I, I'll get roasted. I don't think they are. Why not? I don't think I know enough to make an educated decision. I think they pioneered microservice. I know for a fact they pioneered microservices as an architecture and mm -hmm. uh really can you explain that a bit more yeah we're really one of the first movers onto cloud computing quote unquote so mm -hmm. prior to cloud computing people had to like 
have their own servers and their own data centers and, and run their own resources. Yeah. Amazon comes along and says, Hey, look, we're going to rent you space on our servers and you pay us an overhead fee. We'll worry about the, the, the physical hardware, like the chips, the networking, um, you know, the security of hiring employees to like patrol the grounds, the hardware swaps, all that kind of stuff. That's all going to be taken care of. We got all that. All you have to do is yeah. pay us and then you can run your code on our servers. And Netflix was kind of one of the first, uh, Netflix and Uber were kind of like one of the first companies to get big going that route of architecture mm -hmm. and going mm -hmm. into um, cloud computing. They also were one of the first people to really lean heavily into microservices, which is a way of architecting code into these small tasks instead of one like long running task is kind of a way that I'll say it, but this is going to be a bad example. Say you're like putting books on a shelf and there's like one way that you could do it, which is having like a big robot place, like books on the shelf, like a bunch of books at the same time. But then there's another way of yeah. doing it, which is that you have a bunch of smaller robots putting books on the shelf, right? The small robots, however, are infinitely scalable as in you can have as many of these robots as you want and as few as you want, right? So it's kind of this like mm -hmm. slider of how much you're using it resource wise, which for a video streaming company is kind of awesome because you don't know yeah. how many resources are gonna be taken when, it, when a show drops. You don't know how many like different kinds of users you're gonna have requesting your service at different types of mm -hmm. days. And this was at a time when, you know, resource management hadn't really been thought about like at a, at a cloud computing level. And so Netflix really pioneered a lot of the ways in that. I think that they've kind of had hit the latter half of their bell curve as far as pioneering a lot of that stuff has come, but they definitely in kind of invented micro microservices as an architecture and were huge in, in bringing that to, to market. I don't think of them as a true, true tech company, although their pay scale, yeah. I think says differently. So I think the tech company sentiment definitely comes from the way that they utilize their data. Yeah. It's not just creative yeah. driven. It's understanding their customer. How, yeah. Understanding yeah. the customer. Um, yeah. Cause there's probably yeah. some really cool things you can get with when a customer stops watching a video, starts watching a video, their thumbnails. Yeah. I, I, you imagine how much time they put into like selecting the right thumbnails for, for these. Not only that, but like they that. change depending on who's yeah. watching. Yeah. Do you know that? Yeah. 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 It's crazy. Yeah, it's um, interesting. So many, so many fascinating things. Um, so all in all, Netflix is just an eh company. Um, 